This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast, back fresher than ever in 2023. Hello, guys. Liel Leibowitz, my co-host. Aloha. And Stephanie Butnick, still my co-host. After all these years. After all these years. We started in 2015, was it? Or did I just make that up? No, I, we no. did. 2015. 2015. And that's almost a decade. 57, We're 79, something or whatever like it was. Yeah, and, back, and in the 57, back in the 57, 78. Back in the 70s. Yeah, back in the like 70s. Those crazy 70s. I've the heard about them. The bottoms are in. Everyone had mutton chops. <laughs> Oh, today on our show, uh, we're bringing you the first installment of something we've been talking about here for a while. We've talked to you about it a little bit, and now it's debuting. It's Across the Jew Essay. By the way, if you don't like that pun, write to me. I'm responsible. If you it, like it, 1,000% write on to you. me. And if, if you don't like better puns, or worse. why right. are you listening to this show? Yeah. Seriously. Also, Across the Jew Essay is styled with periods. It's Jew period, S period, A period. For those of you, do you want to explain the pun? Who are wondering? No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. To kick off this series, Leo went down I-95 to the first state, Delaware, to see what was happening in Wilmington, and it's it's a a beautiful, soul-nourishing episode of Across the the USA. May they all be this good. We also have a Gentile of the week who walked across the USA, the United States of this America. This guy looks the most like Jesus out of any living American. But the Gentile Jesus. Right. Like, he looks like we, what <laughs> Gentiles think Jesus looked like. He's very blonde, very blue-eyed. He's California long, Jesus. Long flowing hair. He's he's fronting an alt-rock band. He's Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. His name is Jonathan Stalls, and he joined us to talk about what that experience was like and the book he wrote about it. The book is called Walk. Slow down, wake up, and connect at one to three miles per hour. That is literally my speed. That's what I was going to say. That's And that's, this is very Jesus-like to give you specific, you know, <laughs> instructions. And a late-breaking additional special extra Jew of the Week, Mendel Goldman, will join us to talk about his virally sensational videos of him doing current pop songs in Yiddish. If you haven't seen them yet, you will want to see them after you hear Mendel Goldman on our show. But first, Stephanie Butnick, how goes it? It goes really, really well because we are in a newly revamped, reorged, redecorated studio mm-hmm. at Tablet Studios. This studio looks amazing. Josh Cross was like an elf over <laughs> over the holiday. I think that's what elves do, right? They like reorganize everything and they make it look better. So we have like such a good setup and I feel the vibe is very good. Mm-hmm. Like we used to be sitting among a lot of clutter. Yeah. I will say and it stressed me out. Now there's no clutter and we're like, our table has shifted. It's like it's like a nice, cool there, space there here. There are cleaner lines, but what I want is a little bit. I want a lava lamp. I want it to be a little more. Yeah, high we still school, have the shag carpet attic. that we have the shag carpet works with the sound nicely. I'm told. Right, I want it to be Scandinavian mid-century blondewood modern meets Josh's Dortmund. pot den. <laughs> 17-year-old boy pot den. We still have all all the Holocaust books, however. That we did not get rid of. <laughs> and you're sitting right next to them. And also a few cookbooks next to you, which is like a little weird, but that's our vibe. I, um, by the way, now realize exactly what I'm going to do with a few books I haven't been able to sell because I love them too much, but I don't know what to do with them in my they house. They go here. Including the Jap handbook, which we've talked about on the show. Well, anything that, that we've talked about on the show belongs in this room right, so that right. we can basically be surrounded by on our bookshelves. Exactly. Books of the people we've interviewed. I love it. It's exactly. great. It's like our presidential library. It is. <laughs> it's the Mark Oppenheimer presidential library. <laughs> which would be in Springfield, Massachusetts. Like Absolutely. if I ever become president, you don't get to in, presidential library? In Springfield. In the bathroom of a Friendlies. <laughs> the whole library is in the bathroom. Of a, in the bathroom of the original Friendlies on State Street, actually. I just, I have very little, I mean, a lot happened to me over break. Tell I, us, tell us. But but the only thing that I want to talk, it was very nice. I, I got to hang out with lots of family and we had be- eight beautiful nights of, of Hanukkah and the traditional pajamas were given. The, the kids all have matching pajamas for another year, thanks to my in-laws. It was great. We didn't do the eighth night charity giveaway that I think, Liel, you do in your family and that, that that many families do that now makes me 
guilts me every year that I'm not raising my kids to have a proper sense of chesed. But, you know, next year, next year in New Haven. But I do want to mention one thing that happened. You guys were following the story about what I want to call chat PGA, mm-hmm. uh, but it's chat GP. Is that the AI thing chat, chat that G- you can tell? Chat GPA. Chat GPT. It's when it writes your papers for you for school. Right, oh, which writes your papers, which might, is driving all my, my teacher friends crazy. What are they going to do? So I had not thought about it because there's no, as yet, no AI for Jewish podcasting. Though when that comes, we're taking a lot of weeks off. But but I hadn't thought about it. And then I get an email. Hi, everybody. The Holocaust was funny. Have you been to Friendly's Fribble Fish I'm a Jig? Genteel of the week. Um, <laughs> but I got an email a few days ago from the other Mark Oppenheimer, um, the South African barrister who yeah. we've had on our show, who um, also podcasts, has a podcast about philosophy, not religion, but it's kind of like the alter me. Kind of moving into your turf And a not to be there. confused with the South African barista, Mark Oppenheimer, right. who's totally different. Total, totally different. Yeah. Totally different. And he wrote to me, he said, Dear Mark, I hear, you know, I hear from him every few months, right? Because he, of course, got the original, the Gmail. He got mark.oppenheimer at gmail.com. He writes to me and says, Dear Mark, I was playing around with chat GPT and this popped out. Thought you would enjoy it. I entered, write a soliloquy about Mark Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> you guys really are the same. And then, Welcome, we really exactly. Are. Welcome to the end of the species. <laughs> right, the narcissism. Only one will win. Right. <laughs> and he writes, and he says, and this is what popped out. And I'm going to read it for you. It's like, it's 10 or 12 lines long, but bear with me. It's it's worth every, every, every line. <laughs> Can I read it? You I would like it? to read it. Okay, Liel's going <laughs> to, I can't do it. You read it, Liel. A soliloquy about Mark Oppenheimer. Oh, Mark Oppenheimer, great philosopher and writer, your thoughts on religion have set the bar higher. You've explored the depths of faith and its meaning, helping us to understand the complexities of believing. Your work on the intersection of religion and culture has shed light on the role that it vultures in shaping our world and how we live. You've shown us how to better give. So here I stand in contemplation of your ideas and their (laughs) perturbation on the way I think about my own beliefs. You've challenged me to be more discerning and brief. But even as I grapple with your words so true, I can't help but wonder what more you could do to inspire us to think and to grow. Oh, Mark Oppenheimer, your insights, they show the complexity of the human mind and how religion is intertwined with our search for truth and meaning. Oh, Mark Oppenheimer, your work is never ending. Wait. And your hair is beautiful. Please read how other Mark Oppenheimer signs off this email. He signs, which is how we know this is not you, kind, Mark Oppenheimer. Kind regards, Mark Oppenheimer. <laughs> kind regards. Kind regards. That's my favorite part. Cheers. Right. He does. He's, he, has a, he has a proper line. Ahoy hoy, Mark Oppenheimer. So, so anyway, um, that was the best. You know, many fine things happened to me over break. This was definitely among the best. But I also got in some some very nice travel. I um, Rebecca and I took skiing lessons. This is gonna. This is the bougiest thing you'll hear on the podcast this uh, century. We took skiing lessons in Switzerland. I had not skied since I was a teenager, and she had never skied. And we um, long story how we ended up in Switzerland. It's not because we had money to burn or a free private jet flight to Switzerland, but we ended up there and. Uh, it, it was it was great, but not as great as ChatGPT's ode to me. Wait, so, I really like your pronunciation of bougiest. You mean, is that like bougie? Bougie. bougie. I say bougie. 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 Okay, bougie. I think you just mean Gentile. Maybe I just mean Gentile. You Maybe just I, mean skiing in like the Alps to me is like peak 
peak gent. Yeah, you mean alpine. I mean, literally a lot of the women there have the two Swiss Miss ponytails when they <laughs> ski. That is the ski But it's guard. like the hat that has They're them the attached, and- right? <laughs> <laughs> no, in America, it'd be a hat with them attached with a stadium buddy for them to like drink beer and then, but over there, they're actually blonde ponytails. So while you were hanging with Heidi in yeah. Switzerland, yeah. I took my family to see a little place I like to call America. Yeah, the real, real people. We got, we got, we got in a rented minivan and we drove all across this beautiful nation of ours. We visited Graceland, Elvis's home, which next to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, I believe is the second holiest place on, <laughs> on the face of planet Earth. And all religions agree about this one. There's no, there's no quarreling amongst religions yes, about this God, one. God loved us very much, which is why he gave us his only son, Elvis, to entertain us. And then now Elvis, Elvis returned, Aaron. Re- returned home. Uh, it it was amazing. We saw the Grand Canyon, Joshua Tree National Park. We spent Christmas in Las Vegas. We had an amazing, amazing time. Oh, and you drove by Beverly Hills High. I drove by and Beverly Hills High only to send you a photo of Beverly Hills High. From 90210. There's so much to talk about. This is such an amazing country. And I was so delighted that my kids finally got to see it and see its glories and really feel how incredible it is. And, you know, Hudson downloaded this little like road tripping app and said things like, oh, we need a, you know, 130 mile detour to visit the Rattlesnake Museum in Albuquerque. It was amazing. We got to San Francisco, which my kids learned firsthand was like just a desolate hellscape, which everyone despises. But then we get to the <laughs> airport and, and the most incredible thing. To happened. the San Francisco airport. And I am randomly selected, quote unquote, for uh, a security check. The TSA agent looks in my bag and removes a snow globe we had bought in Oklahoma and said, sir, you can't carry this on the plane as it contains more than the allotted amount of liquids to take on a plane. Right. No, look, I come from a country that is actually the only country in the world that mastered airport security. So I'm kind of chuckling. It's been asking about your bar mitzvah. But the 11 and 9 year old look at her with this like totally bemused look. And you could tell that they're like thinking about the scenario that this is here to prevent. It's like, imagine, you know, imagine the hijacker with this note of like, attention infidels. We have hijacked this plane. We are now in command of this vehicle. Unless you succumb to our demands, we will regale the pilot with scenes of historic Route 66. You know, if you don't we will answer, shake the snow globe. If you don't answer to our demands, we will shake it and pretend like it is snowing and also play Yankee Doodle Dandy. You're saying it was not nitroglycerin inside it, the snow globe. It was just it was just amazing. To see. I have many questions. What is a snow globe from Oklahoma? Is there a lot of snow in that Oklahoma? It is Route 66. But where is, is there snow in that state? Regularly? Well, the day we arrived there. It's uh, a sandstorm. We, we just crossed. You, first of all, when you get there, you really do understand the Dust Bowl and Okies. O- because Oklahoma is a special place in that the, regard. There's, there's it, Oklahoma is what you think crossed, it would be. Exactly. We cro- yeah. I, I love it. We crossed into, and, the, into the, the massive winter storm. We hit it there. It was zero degrees when we woke up in Tulsa and it was 28 below with a wind chill. And I was driving... The wind was just, you know, bashing into me and, and you totally get, you know, you get grapes of wrath. You get the whole Tom <laughs> Joad vibe and, and how that happened. It's just amazing. Kids have now lived it. My kids have seen but five states and your kids have now seen 30 probably. My kids, well, and Switzerland. And sw- right. <laughs> we, just, we just go east. My kids uh, now love America even more. News of the Jews. Jay, news of the Jews. Uh-huh.
News of the Jews, Liel, I hate to take you out of your American reverie, but I believe as our Israeli animal correspondent, we must turn to you for 2023's first News of the Jews item. So guys, this is, this is not a funny news item. It's very serious. It involves the national security of the Jewish state, but I shall read it with a somber tone because they're on to us. Headline, Israel trained cattle to spy on Palestinian village, says PA Daily. <laughs> a Palestinian village elder fabricated the story, or so the Zionist news media claims, about Israeli livestock participating in spying activity, which the official Palestinian Authority daily news outlet, Al-Hayat Al-Jadida, published as reality, according to a report <laughs> by Palestinian Media Watch. Quote, on the neck of each cow, they hang a medallion with an eavesdropping and recording device on it, and sometimes cameras in order to monitor every detail in the village, the elder said. The PA Daily further claimed that a Palestinian village elder spotted Israeli cows that are actually, quote unquote, recruited and trained spies. So listen, I, I, I knew about this. I wasn't going to tell you, uh, but now the news <laughs> is out. This was your IDF division? It is not fabrication. It is reality. It is not the IDF. It is a special intelligence unit. It's called the Mossad. <laughs> <laughs> and they're completely correct. In the Mossad, we we recruit and train cows. Not every cow could be recruited. <laughs> it makes the cows be yeah. very careful. Like, so Bessie, how, how do you feel about Herzl? And you know, if she answers correctly, like, I think you have, I think you have a future in this. And then we uh, train them to. Uh, you know, eavesdrop. you just you just about this, Leo, but. This is entirely plausible to me. This is not technologically impossible. You could hang medallions around the cows and they can cross borders freely and they can... I mean, it's not implausible. Meeting, meeting in, in Israeli intelligence <laughs> headquarters. Tzachi, we could use the drones that we have to take perfect aerial shots. Oh, hear me out here. You know, we could hear it uh, through the uh, bovine. Uh, we could make the thing with the medallion on the cow. So, okay, this... Dude, they make the desert moo. <laughs> this this makes me happy because I can pull up my favorite ever Wikipedia page, which is Israel-related animal conspiracy theories. <laughs> so I'm going to read you the first line. Zoological conspiracy theories involving Israel are occasionally found in the media or on the internet, typically in Muslim-majority countries, alleging use of animals by Israel to attack civilians or conduct espionage. These conspiracies are often reported as evidence of a Zionist or Israeli plot. There is a whole, like, the set, it starts with birds. Dol birds. The dolphin there's, is my favorite. There's five subsections of birds. Kestrels, bee-eaters, vultures, eagles, <laughs> griffin vultures. Then there's fish, sharks, mammals. So that's dolphins, pigs, rats, cattle. So this falls under, actually, section 3.4 of Wikipedia. There's rodents of unusual size from the Princess Bride. Then there's reptiles. Um, so I this is actually how I learned about different animals. Like, I don't know what a bee-eater is. Um <laughs> They're ruminants, non-ruminants, grazers, non-grazers. I mean, look, we're, this is a chance fins, for all of us to scales. learn about the many animals, the many creatures in the animal kingdom that you could put a little tracker on. I will say it is funny because like a lot of animals do have trackers on them for a yeah, lot see, of reasons. And so it's like- You guys are doing Zionist misdirection. I think this is totally plausible. The, it's totally true. See, the, the, the Mossad has a fow dairy section. Uh, it's like fowda, only for oh, cows. Yeah. Uh -huh. We train them to look like Palestinian cows and you could never know. They go into- Grazing you know, <laughs> land for Palestinians, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh my God, this is not, you know, Fatima. This is, you know, Chava, the Israeli cow. Chava, the Israeli cow. I it's love it. It's all true. You heard it here first. But listen, incredibly, yeah, this is not the funniest news story that broke this week because you, my friend, wrote a terrific piece for the New York Times about what truly is, I think, the gift that keeps on giving. You must mean none other than United States Representative, Republican of Long Island, George Santos. My man. Yeah. So some of you may have followed the 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 ongoing story of Republican Congressman-elect. Now he's been seated, George Santos, 
who it turns out fabricated literally everything about himself except, as far as we know, his own name. First of all, he said he went to the Horace Mann School for prep school, and that wasn't true. He said that after college, and I forget where he lied about going to college, he was recruited by Goldman Sachs and worked there, which also wasn't true. He said that he founded an organization, a nonprofit called Friends of Pets United, Fopu, which sounds amazing. Which, and by which the way, I, the best part of your piece was like, do you mean Friends of Pets United are the Pets United or the Friends United? <laughs> right. What about and, the Lonely and are the Solitary? Friends, exactly. Are the Friends also Friends of Pets who are not united? <laughs> the Lonely what? Solitary Pets? <laughs> like them. And then, of course, because what story would be complete without a Jewish angle, he claimed to um, be the grandson of Holocaust refugees from Europe to Brazil. And it turns out, in fact, his maternal grandparents were Roman Catholics who were born in Brazil before the fascists ever came to power. Like, it was all, it's all complete lies. So, yes, my question about all this was, why is it that New York area politicians, AOC, Julia Salazar, Dudi, Avi, Santos, all want to claim to be a smidge Jewish? Like, why is this a thing? Everyone seems to want to be a little bit Jewish. And it occurred to me, nobody wants to be fully Jewish. Like, he doesn't want, <laughs> he doesn't want to actually keep the Sabbath or have to learn seven different fast days. But everyone likes to have a Jewish ancestor somewhere, somewhere back there. Like, that's, there's no bad ancestry. The basic point is he's further proof that everyone would like to be a little bit of something so long as you're not on the hook for actually being that thing today. Well, I the best thing is that when he was confronted about this, he was like, no, 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 I didn't say I was Jewish. I said I was Jewish. Right. And everyone was like, wait, that's not a thing. That's I mean, not it a kind thing. of isn't. It's not. It's amazing for him to say it because, okay, there are people who are kind of Jewish. They have all their friends are Jews. They've lived, a, you know, people think they're, you're like, your friend yeah. Irene is kind of Jewish. Would yeah. you say? Yeah. 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 George Santos not Jewish. Not Alan Alda. Not, Jewish. Not, uh, yeah. yeah, Alan Alda. Seth Myers. Yeah. Right, Seth Myers. Like, George Santos, not remotely Jewish. Totally Goyish. I got to like, tell you. The most Goyish man there is. I am completely obsessed uh, with the story. I am now unironically obsessed with the yeah. story. First of all, my friend Matt pointed out that George Santos is actually the congressperson for uh, fictional East and West Egg, which means he's literally Jay Gatsby's congressperson. Yeah. Which, which makes all kinds of sense because really— he is like you the know, original crypto what, Jew. That's only Sam Blankman Fried is the only crypto Jew I, I acknowledge. <laughs> um, you know, George Washington said, you know, I cannot tell a lie. Washington George Santos said, like, I cannot not tell a lie. He's like the complete, like, go big or go home. And I sort of love this, but I want to also coin another principle here. Let's call it the Oppenheimer principle. If you're going to claim ancestry, you can't just do it because you think we control the banks or the media. You automatically, you're in. You're, right. All you have to do is say, I'm Jewish. My answer is Jewish. That's fine. But then you have to be a gabai of a shul for three years. <laughs> well, first you have to learn what a gabai is. What's Correct. a gabai? You, you need to be the person calling everyone to prayer, you know, nudging everyone for their Hey, Jews. you want an aliyah? Do you want an aliyah? Exactly. Right, 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 come, right. come. Yeah. I and like then correcting, correcting their, their Torah pronunciation. Yeah, I have as they to say. Change. You run the sisterhood immediately. Right. You run the sisterhood gift shop. That's right. This yeah. is, again, he was trying to run the men's club and being like, we got the bacon. Everyone's like, wait, George Santos, this seems confusing. <laughs> um, the, the rub really is, is that he's he represents Long Island, which like as my my homeland, that is like very Jewish place. And you're like, oh, were you doing it? Like, it's really creepy yeah. to think about. You're like, oh, you're doing it because you want people like there is a benefit that you see. It's sort of what your piece was saying, like in being Jewish. And is it nefarious because you think Jews control everything? Is it just because you want to endear yourself to your constituents, many of whom happen to be Jewish? But you're also just like. I have to say, I, I do kind of love that people are lying about being Jewish. It's amazing. Like, people want to be Jewish you know, so bad that they're just have making shit idea. up. I have a better idea. Okay, get this. All these American politicians are lying about being Jewish. Meanwhile, separately, there is a political crisis in Israel. 
what if every American politician says they're a Jewish, is Jewish, but then has to serve three years in the Knesset before they can be elected to anything here. George Santos, you're now Israel's minister of Hasbara for the next three years. Then you could be a congressperson. He's Israel-y. That's right. <laughs> well, my favorite part, though, was the fact that on discovering that he was not Jewish, the Republican Jewish caucus said he will no longer be invited to their parties. That's a gift. He, he's now excused from the Republican Jewish caucus's parties because I don't think they get the good drugs. Leo, correct. You probably know some Republican Jewish caucus types. I have been to Republican Jewish do they get parties. The, do they get the good drugs? We drink, sir. Okay. Like, like okay. good upstanding well, Americans. My favorite thing about this is that like the one photo of George Santos that every news outlet used, I was like, wait, I recognize that logo. It's literally from his speech at the Republican Jewish coalition. And you're just like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. This we guy pretended even, to be Jewish, and all the photos we're using is of him at this Jewish Him repping Judaism. Event. Also, he wore a crew neck sweater under his suit. So we should have known. We should have known. There is no more important news this week than, like, a recently viral series of videos of this amazing singer translating pop songs into Yiddish. I was so excited about this that we actually got this guy, Mendel Goldman, into our studio. I'm, I'm gesticulating so Wait, wildly. You're saying he's a real person, not an AI chat No, no, bot. no, he's not a bot. He's he an actual real. Jewish human. Mendel Goldman, we saw your videos. We love them. You're singing Lizzo in Yiddish. You're singing Harry Styles in Yiddish. We basically said, come in. So welcome to Unorthodox, Mendel Goldman. Thank you for having me. And I don't think we've ever been as excited. <laughs> I, I, be I don't think I've ever been as excited about a guest in, I don't know, three years. So this is great because you're like a real amazing musician and you sort of have, have gone you're viral. You're Grammy Hall would call a real Jew. You're a real Jew. <laughs> say. No, no, I just mean like you're not you're not gimmicky, but, but you did these songs in Yiddish. Everyone was sending them to me. So tell us what happened and what it's like to go bye-bye. Well, I actually, so I had released a video, a completely different video, promoting my song that's dropping later this week called Bad For Me, um, in which I basically took the, I don't, I don't know if you've seen these videos where these artists have made where it's a skit like they're coming into the studio and you, something unexpected happens. So I did one of those skits. I'm like, you know, it would be funny if someone did these things with like a rabbi coming into the studio. And like, you know, <laughs> nobody expects a rabbi to come on and start like belting. Right. So I was like, you know what? That that would be a funny video. So I, so I did the video and I did the typical, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm not doing the regular thing. And somebody put a comment on when he said he was going to do something different. I thought he was going to start doing Lizzo in Yiddish. <gasps> so ding, shout ding, out ding. to, I don't remember his username <laughs> right now, but shout out to him because yeah. and the second I saw that, I was like, oh my God. Give us a portrait of the artist as a young man. Uh, what what do you grow up listening to? What do you love? How do you start getting into music? What's going on? So music has always been a part of my blood. My dad is a drummer, a really, really good drummer. Uh, he introduced me to a lot of the music that I listen to now. Um, growing up, we listened to a lot of orthodox music. You know, you had the Avram Fried and MBD and, of course, Miami Boys Choir. Mm. You know, had, had, to, had to throw that in there. Um, of which I was actually a member, which was what? awesome. Yeah. 
It's like the Mickey Mouse Club. It's surprising, right? It's like the Mickey Mouse Club. They all spin off. It's going to be weird if you weren't. Brittany, Extina, Justin, Mendel. So my father showed me a lot of my musical inspiration. So that's that's how I got started in music. I started out just like, you know, wanting to sing. Um, and after doing that for a couple of years and just singing on with the choir and just at home. Uh, so I started writing my own songs. And then eventually for my bar mitzvah, somebody got me a microphone and I just started building my studio from there and started learning how to produce. And I've spent the last, I would say, 10 years producing and experimenting and just trying different things and seeing what works. So is that is that your full-time, is that your gig? Is that what you do for a living? That's what I'm doing right now. Uh, up until about two weeks ago, I was actually doing real estate as well and doing music on the side. And then, I don't know, I just decided, you know, now now is the time to go all in on music. And then a week later, that that video happened. And it was the Lizzo video. That was yeah. the one that broke out. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this. This is something I'm, I'm actually grappling with. So music is a, I'm not, I have no talent, but it's a significant part of my life. I can attest to both of those. He has no talent, <laughs> but it's and a significant it's a part, of part of his life. life. Something I'd say about myself as well. And I listen to a lot of the music uh, that goes in. And I like a lot of you know contemporary artists, etc. But sometimes I listen to titles. I won't even repeat them here. And I think to myself, this is really gross. This is like really kind of debased and like super over-sexualized and like celebrating all the wrong things and like this uber materialistic culture and here you are trying to break into this and 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 listening to this do you ever stop and reflect like i mindfully want to make a different sort of music uh i'm entering into a field that seems to be kind of believing in things that 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 we don't believe in or are you just completely just focused on just making great music and not even thinking about this it's a little bit of both because you know i, I can't tell you how many times i've erased the f word from a song I, I have had so many songs where like I had I, I had this one song that I did with a couple DJs out in uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, it ended up being called Lonely. We released it over the summer. I had a line in there. The original lyrics went, wish somebody told me that life could get lonely. Oh, I wish that shit was never true. And I went back and forth with myself like wrestling. Do I release a song with a swear word in it? Do I not? Um, I eventually decided not to just because I don't want an hour conversation with my mother. <laughs> it's just not worth it. On, on this show, it's by the way, worth we, we replaced the F word with Fabrengen. Oh, I love that. Like, that's so yeah. Fabrengen cool. You know what? Take, I, that, I, take that back to Crown Heights, would you? I, I will absolutely take that back to Crown Heights. I, I don't think want we credit. Should put it, I think we should put it on a t-shirt. The universe's best Fabrengen podcast. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now yeah. all we yeah. need is a bottle of, of, of whiskey. Okay, so you started with, with, with the Lizzo song. You've since done how many of these American pop songs? Uh, Yiddish? The Yiddish songs, I think I've done three. Uh, I did the Lizzo one, we did Harry Styles, and then just before Shabbat, I did Jake. Can you give me an example of, of a line that you worked hard on and where you really got happy with the translation from the, the English to the Yiddish? So the Lizzo one was actually a really hard one because I don't think there is a word for the F word in Yiddish. So <laughs> I, 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 think, I think I got as close there as I can. There is now for Brengen. What did so, you go with? So yeah. I went with Valich Gebebald, which I think is the closest translation. I think it literally means fornicate. Uh, but... Uh, I think, I I think that's the closest translation. And here I am, fornicating. <laughs> and so how do you, because it's not just translating, right? You have to make it work yes. with the cadence and the beat. So there is some artistic liberties. Uh, for example, in the Jake video, he has a line where it says, you slow down time. The literal translation in Yiddish is, du machst Zeit pamelach, but it just doesn't work. <laughs> so I did pamelach Zeit, which 
if you translate it literally is gibberish, it means slow time. But uh, so have the Yiddishes come for you yet? For your, few, yeah. Few, you know what? They, that's when you've made it. They've you've honestly met, made them mad. I, I've always, I've, I've always felt like you know the second the anti semites come for me, then I've made it. Yeah, right. we, we got that, yeah, boys. We got through. it. We feel that way too. Some of them have come on and been like, "Oh, this is not Yiddish." Others have, others have messaged me and been like, "Hey, if you need help with the translation next right. time, here's my number." But you know, I try to pay attention to the supportive stuff and not really give attention to the negative stuff. And, and, try and to Harry Styles were like, "Dude, this is way better than my original." <laughs> <laughs> Which is how I feel. By the way, I can't stand the original. I've been obsessed with yours ever since I Thank heard you. it. So will you play a bit for us from some of your pop covers and then also some of your, your own music? Of course. Your new music? Quinn told me you guys are big Taylor Swift fans. hi, ich bin die problem, Ich guck gleich auf dem Sonnenbot, kein Mal in dem Spiegel. Sie da sein Exhausting, da mal geil in Fahrt, die Antihero. Okay, so that's one we got Antihero right there. <laughs> Weil ich weiß, du bist schlecht, wenn du kommst da rein. Es hat Pusche auf mir, dass ich, du nimmst mir zu Platz, und ich hab nicht gewähnt. Bis du legst mir herab, euch. Ich weiß, du bist schlecht, wenn du kommst da rein. Es ist Busche auf mir, dass ich gehe zu Platz und du es nicht gewinnt. Jetzt dich legt euch, jetzt, hang on one second. Jetzt dich legt auf die Kalt, stark erd. Oi, oi, oi. Schlecht, schlecht, schlecht. <lacht> Unbelievable. <laughs> we got Josh Dine over here. Schlecht, schlecht, schlecht. Just amazing. Okay. Well, All right. Yeah, watermelon sugar. <laughs> watermelon. <laughs> let, me, let me see. Let me see. For that, hang on one second. I need to actually like pull up the lyrics so I can, <laughs> so I can see them in real time. Box. The best joke box that's we're ever existed. We're like a trade Yiddish monkey. We're going we're gonna to try. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. Watermelon sugar high. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how good my on the fly okay. my on the fly okay. Yiddish is. We'll we'll, we'll see. How do you say breathe? We're gonna, we're just gonna go with breathe. Okay. Breathe me rein. Breathe me rein. Ich weiß nicht, ob ich kann ever gehen und mit. Ich nur den Genau. Ich weiß nicht, ob ich kann ever gehen und Watermelon Zucker, hey. Watermelon Zucker, hey. Watermelon Zucker, hey. Watermelon Zucker, hey. Strawberries. <laughs> Okay, Mendel, enough covers. Can we get a taste of your new original song, Bad For Me? It's bad for me. Oh, 
keep coming back for more I love it and I hate it, can't resist, I'm torn It's bad for me, oh, it's bad for me I can't control my mind, so I'll stay inside and hide What's bad for me? So I wrote it when I was 16 and making a lot of stupid decisions, just, you know, going, staying out late at night and doing really, really stupid things. So one day I, I actually was just like walking on the Brooklyn Bridge and this melody came to my head and I had that hook in my head for about like six years. A lot of the lyrics actually comes from an inspiration of a conversation I had with a friend. He was just telling me about how he feels, he always feels like he's close to a bad decision. He he walks outside the house and he he's like I'm I'm gonna do something stupid today. Trouble is never far away. Exactly, and it's it's just the idea of that. And you know we're also drawing a little bit from a Hasidic discourse called Overcoming Folly, which essentially talks about all this stuff. You know, just staying away from bad things and trying to keep your mind on what's important and what you need to accomplish. And there's a limited amount of time to every day. And hearing that song for the first time, even before talking to you, I was like. This feels like it must be inspired by your experience, right? Of like living in the secular world, but being a religious person. 100%. And those, those, those tensions. And even when you say going outside, like there are temptations around, right? And I see you have your yarmulke on, you have your TC. Like you are trying to live a certain way within a very different world. Listen, I, I, I don't think that there's a huge contradiction between the way we live our lives and between the rest of the world lives their lives. You know, I don't. There's, there's a lot of Jews who, you know, stay away from smartphones, movies, and on TV, TV and whatever else there is. I don't think there's anything wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with entertaining yourself. There's, you know, go, go watch a movie. Go listen to the radio. Go listen to whatever music you want. As long as you know what you need to do in your life and, you know, you keep, for lack of a better term, keep your eye on the prize, you know, and there's, there's no reason why you can't enjoy your life as well as do what you believe is right. What, what I always say is, I don't make Jewish music. I'm a Jewish person who makes music. And I see a big difference in that because I'm not making music specifically for religious people. If religious, uh, 100% listen, listen to it. I, I, I want the religious people to listen to it. I want everybody to listen to it. But essentially, what I'm making music for is for the people who would essentially listen to secular music anyways. Now there is something for them that is made by a religious Jew technically can be categorized as Jewish music, 
and is available for them in a genre that they enjoy. And that's better, both artistically and morally. So Mendel's mom, if you're listening, <laughs> we're very, very, very but proud of you. But bringing proud of him. <laughs> <laughs> bringing proud of you. So here's the most important question we'll ask you today. Where can we go to find more? More Everywhere. More, more. Everywhere. Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Tidal, if anybody actually uses it, uh, Amazon Music, uh, Deezer. I, I don't know what it is, what but, but your music is on it. What should people be searching right now when they... Mendel Goldman. I, I'm extremely authentic. I, I, I tried going with a couple different names, you know, artist names, and tried to figure something out, but nothing ever felt right. Mendel yeah. Goldman, thank yeah. you for, for, for blessing us with your presence. Thank and you guys so much for having me. So this fun to meet you. Thanks for fellowshipping with us. Oh, that's Absolutely. Amazing. Incredible. Thanks for, for bringing. Control my mind, so I'll stay inside and hide from what's bad for me. crew there's nothing we love more than hosting our jewish podcast from our elite prestigious media conglomerate studios here in new york city but you know what we like more than that is leaving new york city and seeing jews in other places because there actually are other cities and other places that american jews live and so we created across the jew sa with the support of jewish federations of north america we have an ambitious plan to get to 12 american cities all across the continental jew sa we're going to be doing it during 2023, visiting Jewish communities in the U.S. with the assistance of the Jewish Federations of North America, which represents over 400 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $2 billion annually. A tiny fraction of that is going to help us to come see you. And a really tiny fraction of that was all we needed to send Liel Leibowitz to do the first episode of Across the USA, Wilmington, Delaware. Have a listen. I grew up in Israel. But the place I dreamed about, the place I saw on TV and in the movies, the place I always knew I'd one day call home, that place was America. The love I felt for America was real. And one day, I thought, one day, I would get to discover it myself. And then I grew up, and I packed a bag and got on a plane. And when I landed, I realized something right away. I wasn't in America. I was in New York City. Hey, I'm walking here! Which was cool! Don't get me wrong, I loved New York. Jazz and martinis at the Carlisle Hotel, great art at the Met, the Mets playing terrible baseball. What a town! But deep down inside, it's America I wanted to visit. Why? Well, in part because I wanted to see what it was like to be Jewish in a place that wasn't New York or its suburbs. Because here, in my hometown, being Jewish is so easy, you could sometimes take it for granted. I've lived here long enough to know that sometimes we New York Jews have so much to choose from that we choose nothing at all. Staying at home and being Jewish rather than doing Jewish. Because, well, you can be Jewish kind of by osmosis. But I wanted to know what being Jewish was like 
elsewhere in America. Or, if you will, elsewhere across the Jew S.A. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But there's a man of Shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for lots in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the Jew S.A. Jews make up less than 2% of the American population, which means that the central question of Jewish life in America is a straightforward one. How to stay Jewish in an overwhelmingly non-Jewish country? What if you're in some small town where there aren't a lot of Jews? Some place like Wilmington, Delaware. Wilmington is the first place in real America I ever visited. The first place that wasn't New York I got to know well. Why? Because not long after I moved here, I fell in love with a Wilmington girl. She invited me over to her parents' house for winter break 2001, and the moment I saw the town, I fell in love with it as well. Wilmington had everything! A crazy Christmas house with so many lit-up holiday-themed tchotchkes, you could see them from space. A retro 50s diner favored by one Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden, even a few Revolutionary War battlefields to remind you that this indeed was America's first state, the first to ratify the Constitution, as virtually every road sign anywhere in this tiny place will remind you. It was as America as it gets, but how Jewish could it be? I found myself thinking about this question a lot. So when we decided to embark on this big trip across the USA, I knew I no longer had to wonder. I could figure it all out simply by making Wilmington the first stop on our journey. So I jumped into producer Josh Cross's car, made him listen to my music all the way down the New Jersey Turnpike, insulted his driving a bit. Jesus Christ, Josh, are you even watching the road? And a quick two hours later, Josh, you're not driving a DeLorean. We're not traveling back to the future. Slow down. Josh is from Jersey and he drives like a freaking maniac. We were in Wilmington. Oh my God, stop the car and let me out. Now, Josh and I could go visit the places and more importantly, the people who make Jewish Wilmington what it is. So what is it? The number one is very clearly just the people. That's obviously as subjective as it gets. You know, it's a great community. I like the fact that as a small community, we have all of the institutions that you would expect to have in a Jewish community. I think that probably other communities our size, that might not be the case. That's Russ Silberglied, the chairman of the board of the Jewish Federation of Delaware. When we asked him about the size of the community, he said we were in luck. They had just finished a brand new survey of the area that is coming out at the end of January 2023. And according to the survey, there are about 26,000 Jews living in the Delaware and surrounding Brandywine Valley area. This may not sound like much, but get this, the community in Wilmington may have grown by as much as 30% since the last time a survey like this was taken in 1995. Something Russ said made me wonder. There were Jewish institutions in Wilmington, a lot of them. 
the sort of institutions you'd expect to find in a much larger community. A day school, a group for seniors, a community center, a real cornucopia of Jewish life. I wanted to visit all these institutions to meet the people who ran them and ask how such a small community could sustain so much activity. Luckily for me, all these organizations happen to be located in one snug campus. Welcome, welcome to my humble abode. Is Disney World is to some people? This is my Disney World. That's Ivy Harlev. She runs the Siegel JCC, a lovely campus that's home to so much of Wilmington's Jewish communal life. Turn off the highway, right by the Boston Market and across from the Arby's, and you're no longer in suburban strip mall America. You're on the unimprovably named Garden of Eden Road, where all these organizations live. As it happens, my in-laws live right across the street, so I've visited this tiny mid-Atlantic Jerusalem many times to work out at the gym or use the awesome pool. But now I thought I would dive in deeper and see what kind of work went down here. And more important, how it was possible for a community this scrappy to support all of this energy. We have beautiful volleyball courts, sand volleyball courts, an art pavilion, and then we have an amphitheater out there. So we do shows out there and sometimes rentals. Rugby uses the space. I mean, this is like our big backyard, a great community site. That's what we're about, building community. But Ivy's not from Delaware. She's from Florida. So how the heck did she wind up here? Her odyssey began in a gay bar named Woody's in Philadelphia, where she met her now wife, Donna. Soon, they were married. But this was 20 years ago, so it's not like they could just pick up and go wherever they wanted and expect the community to be welcoming. But in Delaware, that's just what happened. So we moved with a four-month-old, and Donna was the stay-at-home parent. We've been embraced. Donna grew up conservative. I grew up reform, so we were mixed marriage. But I do feel a part of all the synagogues. I feel I could walk in and be welcomed at any of the synagogues. They're, that's how everybody feels. We have a, a special community that way. And the first place Ivy took Josh and me was the Albert Einstein Jewish Day School, where we met this charming young person, the lovely Dawson. The world tour is we choose a country and you get to put like facts and paper on it and pick up babka. And what do you do when you're not in school? I ask my mom for a pet tarantula. A bunch of questions swirl around in my head. Wilmington, I knew, was a tiny community. And yet here I was at a day school that was every bit as beautiful and as vibrant as the one my kids go to in Manhattan. And all around the JCC campus, I saw signs for organizations and services and programs and offerings suggesting that this community was punching way above its weight. How did this work? Keeping so many institutions afloat takes a lot of resources. And this wasn't a particularly large or particularly affluent community. And yet, instead of saying, hey, anyone who wants a Jewish education could easily send their kids to a good Jewish school in Philly, half an hour away on the I-95, this community built and kept and ran its own. How did any of this work? Dawson's mom interrupted my reveries. She's Rachel Blumenfeld, and she was a student at Einstein herself. And now, well, she's the principal. And what she had to tell me began to point to an answer. 
So our kids who come from different backgrounds, we've been talking about how to invite them and their families to share in their backgrounds. We have a Vietnamese student and it was just his birthday and the family brought in some Vietnamese you know, items to share how they would celebrate some treats for the kids to try from their culture. And we have a student who recently moved here from China and it was really sweet. There was this one time where she and my daughter were writing on the chalkboard and my daughter's like writing Hebrew and teaching it to her. And then she's writing in Chinese and teaching it to my daughter. And it's just like, you know, it's more of a sharing, I think, which is a lot about what this community is about. Rachel didn't have all day to chat. She had a school to run and that pet tarantula to keep out of her house. But what she said made an impression. So there were Chinese-Americans and Vietnamese-Americans and Italian-American kids and folks from all kinds of faith traditions paying money to send their children to a Jewish school? I mean, you often heard of the opposite, the Jewish kid who was sent to the excellent private school down the road and allowed to skip services at the chapel whenever something got too Jesus-y. But to be 1.5% of the population at best and have everybody come to your school to study Hebrew and learn about your holidays? That was surprising. And it raised a whole other host of questions, like what was it about this place that made people come and stay? But I couldn't ponder it for much longer. The very loud sounds of a basketball dribbling on the hardwood floor cut my chain of thought. So I figured I'd go and say hi to the teenager just hanging out, shooting some hoops. Maybe he will tell me what it was that he liked about being here in this explicitly Jewish setting. Say hello to Ben. So uh, I come here a lot to work out and uh, lift weights at the, in the gym. I also like to play basketball here and then uh, swim laps as well in the lap pool. And in the summer, I, I actually work here at the um, desk at the outdoor pool and the snack bar. This is like my home away from home kind of. I come here almost every day to hang out with friends and. You know, just, I just, just stay in shape and, you know, the basketball, I lift weights mainly. It's a community, definitely. I would say I, most of the people I know, two of my friends or just people I know are from here, more than from school, and it's, it really is, it's a powerful community, you know. I've been going here since preschool, so. Did I just hear a teenager say something like, it's a powerful community? Were these people paid actors feeding us the lines they knew we wanted to hear? that every person who runs or pays for or cares about having a robust Jewish life wants to hear? Or was there something about Jewish life in Delaware that was truly special? I figured I would ask Katie Glazer, who runs programming at the JCC. She's a fourth-generation Wilmingtonian, married to another fourth-generation Wilmingtonian. And that doesn't happen often. So if anyone knows the score around here, it's Katie. She didn't always live here, though. She tried her luck over at a neighboring state. We won't tell you which one, but it rhymes with Dairyland. And, well, she didn't like it. There were 60 shoals to choose from, she said, and at least 40 seemed to be fighting each other all the time for turf and a slice of the shrinking pie of Jewish life. This exhausted the Glazers, so they decided to return home. And here, they found something very different. We have one of everything, and there isn't a lot of the turf wars. Everybody gets along, everybody respects each other for the way that they are observing. And what I love about being here 
I try in my role as program director to sprinkle Jewish on top of the things that we're already doing. So we do some overtly Jewish programming, you know, Hanukkah brunch. We do, you know, programs for Passover and, and spaghetti in the sukkah and all of these wonderful things. But then we also try to just put a little bit of Jewish in the fitness classes and in the things that we're doing here as an agency. And for a lot of people, they're not, for young families especially, they're not joining a synagogue, maybe ever, certainly not while their children are too young for Hebrew school. We're their Jewish outlet. We're where they come to feel connected and Jewish, and I love that. A sprinkling of Jewish on top? That sounds like a recipe for something interesting, especially in a JCC in a town like Wilmington, where 70% of all the people who walk through the door at any given moment aren't Jewish. There's two women, actually, whose names are both Lynn, whose daughters are the same age as my daughter. And they started out coming here for fitness classes, and then they had their daughters, and then the daughters went into the preschool here. And over time, uh, one of them is on, has been on our board, and you know they're involved in so many different aspects of the facility. And a conversation that I had had with one of them years ago was just sort of like, I didn't know much, and then I came here, and now I do. And I think a lot of people say that, that they are learning from their kids. We have a, our camp director here who is not Jewish, tells a funny story about how her son was four before he learned that he wasn't Jewish, because he just, he didn't know. And, because everything here is, is Jewish and feels Jewish, and even though we're not, proselytizing in any way, obviously. We're just teaching the teaching the blessings, singing the songs. All of the kids come home and sing the songs. And some of the songs are you know, the mozi, but to them it's a song and they know that before you eat dinner, you sing the song that's the mozi, but they're praying. I wanted to find some of these folks, those non-Jews who came here, not despite the fact that it was Jewish, but because of it. And thankfully, I didn't have to look very far. One was sitting right next door from Katie. She's Steph Coleman, and she runs the JCC's sports and wellness programs. It's such a big part of my life, and my family's here. Um, it's like a second family. Like <laughs> I feel like the people here are my closest friends. And Your so kids go here? My kid, well, I have a seven-year-old and a one-year-old, and the seven-year-old went to the early childhood center. He's in first grade now, so he comes here for aftercare now, but the one-year-old is, is in the early childhood center currently. How does that feel to, to someone who isn't Jewish? You know, it didn't feel any sort of way in particular coming in, and now I've learned so much about Jewish culture, and so have my kids. <laughs> my little one, when he was just an early talker, they had the, they have a lot of like, the Shabbat songs that he got really into. Um, he stepped on something in our house and he goes, something's on my Espa oats. <laughs> it was the cutest thing. Like, that, like instead of toes, like, Espa oats was what came to mind. That, said Ivy Harlev, the JCC's boss lady, is what it's all about. Just throwing the best Jewish party you can and making sure your neighbors are there to party with you. 
Yeah, so I think that the non-Jewish people getting to know Jewish people, because there are some people here that have never met a Jew, and they still join the JCC because they heard good things about it. And then they get to know Jewish people, and then they hear the anti-Semitic things that are going on outside, and they can, they can rebut it. And I think that we just have to live our lives and live it Jewishly, but with other people, so that we can combat that. Amen, Selah. Look, there's more than one way to be Jewish in America. You could decide, as so many have, to completely assimilate and just strive to be like everyone else. Or you could decide that you want to completely shut yourself off from everyone else and lead a distinctly, exclusively Jewish life. Or you could do what they do here in Wilmington, which is a little bit of both. Be as Jewish as you want to be, as proud, as explicit, and as out there as you possibly can, and hope and know that this pride and this joy will make your non-Jewish neighbors join in on your very Jewish fun. I'll let Russ Silberg lead from the Jewish Federation of Delaware put the final point on this Wilmington success story. What sustains it, I think, is just the sense of community. So now that we've seen a little bit of Jewish America, I want to see more, and I hope that you do too. Next month, we'll take you somewhere completely different. Where? Stay tuned and you will see. Until then, this has been Across the Jew-S-A. excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Mailbox. So much great mail came into unorthodox at tabletmag.com over break. I'd like to take the first one, if I may. Dear Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, happy Hanukkah. So this dates it a little bit. Your conversation about advent calendars is so interesting because I grew up with a Hanukkah advent calendar. As a young child, I was gifted a calendar of the Jewish Museum in New York. The little windows and the fiddler on the roof each have a number, one through eight, and open up to tell part of the Hanukkah story. Also, a message for Quinn regarding the episode where you wanted more Jewish friends your own age. I had really good luck with the New York City metro area Moisha houses and have been friends with the people I met there for nearly 10 years now. Regards, Blair, the unimprovably Jewishly named I love Blair. Blair. And, and if you subscribe to our brand newly revitalized Unorthodox newsletter, you could see a photo of those advent calendars that producer Robert Scaramuccia included, which was great. It was and beautiful. The, and they're things of great beauty. Liel, I feel like the next letter is, is really for no one but you. Yes, it is. Hi, Unorthodox. Long time listener here. 
Once in a blue moon, you touch upon the guns and shul debate. Hey, that be me, I feel seen. As you did while covering Coleview last January. And I'm here to offer you a take I bet you've never heard. For about $100, you could buy a certified Kevlar armor insert and slip it into a tallest bag, transforming the bag you already carry in shul into a life-saving shield. These are lightweight, legal almost everywhere, and are certified to withstand handgun fire. Unlike having a firearm in shul, one's bulletproof tallest bag poses no risk to others and no special training is required. This addresses two of the most common safety concerns. Anyway, best wishes and stay well. Danielle from Colorado. I absolutely love this. And I think there should be a whole line of like, you know, bulletproof, not just the tallest bag, you know, it's a bulletproof tallest. Yeah, that's actually, it covers all the, the parts you want, except the bag. If the tallest yeah. were bulletproof, you'd yeah. have a mesh yeah. bulletproof yeah. tallest. By the way, this is heavy. a helmuka, which yeah. is a helmet yamaka mix. Yeah. This is the most depressing thing I've ever heard. I will say, though, I was on the subway recently and I had my laptop in my purse, like right up against me. And I was like, Oh, if I guess it's good to have your laptop on you because I imagine that could protect you if like and this is a, an insane world we live in where like mm -hmm. that is a thought you're thinking. I didn't actually understand this letter until just now. It's basically like it turns your it's just a thin tallest bag thing into a shield that you can co cover. Correct. Wow. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, from a tactical standpoint, if all you have is a foot long well, depends bag, how big your tallest a is. foot long little thing of Kevlar and someone comes with like a semi-automatic weapon. Yeah, you know, you're, you're still kind well, of... what I was thinking is you could here. throw it at them. Throw a thing that weighs four and a half pounds at them? Suffered the wrath of my to fill in bag. There should be then things in the pew pockets, right? Like if we're trying to throw... Th like maybe we actually like booby trap the place and like in all of your... There's like those... What's those throwing things? I'm not, I'm serious. Little ninja stars? Them, um, yeah. You want little ninja stars? You're calling and... a Major General Rube Goldberg here. Yes, yeah. Rabbi Rube. No, like, I think that it's not a terrible thing. To, I mean, it's a terrible thing to think, but like, it opens it's a terrible up a new, way to think. Every but arc it's... has two Torahs and a bazooka. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it and opens the Chazan up, is strange. It opens up a thread we should have done long, a long time ago, which is, J. Crew listeners, your best ideas for shul security. Your best outside the box. Yes, yes. Outside the tefillin box ideas for shul security. <gasps> nice. We're missing a huge opportunity. Sadaka boxes? Shul security meets Mossad-trained animals. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A goat? Every shul has a bunch of these Mossad cows. That just perfect. takes care it's of everything. Perfect. There we go. They seem like normal cows praying in shul, you would never suspect. But if you come in with a gun, all of a sudden, chava the cow. But we do have the like, problem <laughs> that was explained to us on the goat segment we did, which is that you can't really bring goats into your synagogue because they poop everywhere. But maybe the poop is actually oh like, Guys, we, we have, the guy steps in the poop could, and then we he could workshop falls. This. <laughs> we uh, are Stephanie. getting the cut, end this now signal from Josh Cross. <laughs> Stephanie, please read the letter from Sally Mansberg-Rosenberg. It would be my pleasure. Hello, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel. My name is Sally Mansberg-Rosenberg. I know, a lot of Bergs. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm a Southern religious observant reformed Jew. Shout out to Liel, whom I believe did a scout stint here. Absolutely. You should know that we here are arguably in the buckle of the Bible Belt. There are churches on most corners. So here goes. Near Christmas time, when Kay, not their real name, was in the first grade, we passed a church that had a life-size crash on its lawn filled with the requisite life-size figures. As we drove by, Kay said, oh, mommy, look, it's baby Jesus in the sukkah. I thought that was perfect and answered, yes, yes, it is. Sincerely, Sally Mansberg-Rosenberg. Chag Sameach, baby Jesus. Dear Unorthodox hosts, I'm a longtime faithful listener to your podcast. However, in the car on my way home to Palo Alto from L.A., as I listened to the interview with Faith Saley, I was disappointed in your puff piece masquerading as an interview. Perhaps you were being polite and Faith seems delightful, but her and her husband's idea of what it means to bring up Jewish children is laughably naive. Why did no one think to mention that Judaism is celebrated in community? 
that some attendance at Hebrew school, some shul going, some living Jewish is necessary to bring up Jewish children. Be Jewish? What is that? You have to do something. Observe mitzvot, study, celebrate some of the chagim, watch Jewish movies, anything. Lighting Shabbos candles and eating some challah ain't going to be enough, especially when Daddy John doesn't seem to be making much of an effort. His comment that the kids will choose when they're old enough says all you need to know about his level of commitment. None of you is a shrinking violet or overly polite. So what gives? Sincerely, Heather Silverman. So two comments on this. First of all, always good to get a letter from a Heather because Heather and Mark, two of the great 70s names, just not a lot, not a lot of baby Heathers out there. But second, it's so funny that Heather called us out for not being harsh enough on Faith Saley when we got at least one letter in the mailbox that said, why were you so harsh on Faith Saley? Why are we giving her such a hard time about her lack of Judaism? It sounds like she's super committed, whatever. You know, I will say I'm, I'm somewhat persuaded by Heather. I look back on those interviews and I say, yeah, we could have been a little bit tougher on this question of whether they are in fact raising. I mean, she says we're raising Jewish children because we've told them they're Jewish children. But then there seems to be a lot more Christianity in the house than Judaism. So I, I think you know, that's, a, that's a fair point. Yeah, sure. And, and as and we were as being the, polite hosts and as, as the no, you know what? I think we're doing more than that. And, and as the sort of bearded uh, traditionalist zealot, zealot, maniac, kanoi, as, as we say in Yiddish, I suppose, you know, it, it would have been my disposition to do so. But here's how I truly feel. Um, faith is difficult, not faith, Sally, the person, faith, the concept, embracing, connecting with with one's maker. This journey is arduous. Uh, it is very different for each one of us. And I just think this attitude, Heather, you're right about each and every single one of your arguments, but the journey has to begin somewhere. And if it begins with castigations and, you know, incriminations and, and shouting, it's probably not going to go very far. Faith took the first step. And I think that's... The first step being coming on a Jewish podcast. The first step the first saying, step I, is... wanna, I, I actively want to raise Jewish children. This is important to me. This is a priority. That alone is something that most American Jews, let alone, you know, interfaith couples, don't ever bother saying. So, so let's, let's take a second, let's take a breath on our Christmas episode, <laughs> nonetheless, and celebrate that decision. I will only say, in the interest of keeping it real, first of all, of course, that's true. Look, she does more Jewish things than most American Jews. Like, there's no question about that. I mean, like, this person says, she's only lighting Shabbos candles and eating challah. I seldom did either as a child. Never lit Shabbos candles. Seldom had our store-bought challah. But... I do want to say this, though, because I know a lot of our listeners are thinking it. Her kids are how old? Nine, seven, and I feel like her kids five. are like seven and nine. And Something here's the like thing. She's taking the first step. But well, first of all, she's not Jewish. She and her husband are taking the early steps toward raising Jewish children while our kids are almost at the age where they're going to not care at all what they think. And I think it's important to point that out, that for all the people out there who are interested in raising religiously Jewish children, whatever that means to them, when you say to your like 12 and 10 year old, OK, we're going to start learning some stuff. Your 12 and 10-year-old have already realized they don't have to listen to a damn thing you say. How, how many kids did you go through before you got the I, end? I, I'm finally learning three? this. At kid about four? kid four, I'm finally I just learning. want to share a note that came in on the Facebook feed from Sarah Geiger, who says, I was really touched, and I'll admit, became a little misty-eyed listening to Faith talk about how seriously she takes her commitment to raising her Jewish kids. No matter what decisions she and her husband make, being intentional about it is admirable and the best any of us can do for each other. I appreciate her willingness to come to the pod and have an open discussion about it. It prompted a lot of questions within myself about how I feel, which is so important. This time of year is always full of questions for me as a Jew experiencing the full throttle of Christmas. My feelings about it seem to evolve year over year. I thought this discussion was interesting and delightful. Thank you for it. That's how I feel. Okay, so I'm the curmudgeon here. I'm going to play the part of Liel today. That's fine. And finally, a letter sent in by a a friend of mine from, from my shul in New Haven who said, please, I need some help with a question I have. He said, 
Are there ways Judaism can make God more accessible and relevant to those of us who are not into spirituality or mysticism who see the world in more practical terms? For example, when people need help with obstacles in their business or counsel for a family problem or inspiration for an artistic project, rather than having to memorize lots of seldom used brachot, would it be useful to know that there's a relevant face of God for each to whom they can speak in their own words? Sincerely, a friend of Marx. Now, I talked to this gentleman a little bit more about it. He pointed out Christians are always publishing books with, you know, seven Christian business principles or four Christian prayers for how to better raise children. Or that he, he was saying in American culture, there are other religions that are better at saying, here's where our scriptural wisdom will help you. What you're saying, if only there if was, only a, was a, a Jewish, Jewish book, book yeah. that dealt with every aspect of human life from business to divorce to, to sex. medical conditions to sex in one or two or say 63 specific tractates that you could study, maybe say a page a day. If only such a book existed, wouldn't that be a bestseller? It might be. I don't know if it'd be a bestseller at 63 volumes, but. I know. What are we talking about? I, I think I think the Talmud's got you, man. I think you got literally whatever you want. But I feel you uh, because it is a it is a big and unwieldy book written uh, largely in Aramaic and not the easiest beach read for people, which is why someone should go out there and write a book about why the Talmud is truly the greatest self-help book ever written. Coming from W.W. W. Norton Books in October of 2023. You wrote the Talmud, it? You did it? How the Talmud Could Change Your Life. Surprisingly modern advice from a very old book. By Liel. By Liel Shlomo Ben-Sion Leibowitz. Wherever books are sold. Uh, making exactly this point. Because it does offer so much wisdom that is so relevant to literally every aspect of modern life. And so let's uh, let's own it. I love that. I also wish there was like a Google Books version of the Talmud where you can like Control F. Sex. Mortgage. Business. Yeah, yeah, Mortgage. yeah. Chat yeah. GPT. Tell yeah, me what yeah. the Talmud says about <laughs> yeah. sex. The Talmud Mark Oppenheimer, is... you are the greatest Talmudic <laughs> scholar who ever lived. Well, as we wait for your book to drop, I was reminded of something I learned in grad school, which was that in mid-century America, 1950s, a rabbi named Joshua Loth Liebman published the publishing sensation of the year. And it was called Peace of Mind. It was published in 1946, actually. And it was basically Jewish insights into psychiatry, wellness, holistic well-being. I mean, all this super modern stuff. And everyone thought, yeah, a Jew in 1946 is like somebody who's thinking deeply about this stuff. And Gentiles bought this Jewish book. And I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back and reread Peace of Mind by Joshua Loth Liebman and see if it holds up. And that's going to be my little appetizer for how the Talmud can change your life coming in October of 2023. Love it. Our Gentile of the Week is Jonathan Stalls. He spent 242 days walking across America in 2010. He wrote a book about the experience and how simply walking can transform lives. The book is Walk, Slow Down, Wake Up, and Connect at one to three miles per hour. He joined Liel, Mark, and producer Quinn Waller to talk about his book, his story, and how we can all just slow down. Jonathan Stalls, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. So grateful to be here. So Jonathan, you and I met in 
2010 when you were on your 242-day walk across America. I came across you in Maryland on the side of the road. I was 10 years old. (laughs) I was with my dad. I saw this dude and his dog walking on the side of the road. And my dad will talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime. (laughs) (laughs) And he pulls over and he says, hey, what are you doing? (laughs) And um, we found out that you were on a walk across America raising money for Kiva, which is an organization that raises money for microloans for people in economically underserved communities. And in those 10 years since, you have now written a book, um, Walk, Slow Down, Wake Up and Connect at one to three miles per hour. So I'd love to start by asking you, your big thing is walking. And I think we all hear a lot about all of the reasons that we should walk, you know, walking for health, but you kind of introduce a new reason for walking, which is walking as a means of connection and of social transformation. So can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's my main form of medicine. The walk across the U.S. while I was raising awareness for, for Kiva, and the primary reason was was to heal and work through shit. <laughs> it was just to get into a lot of hard stuff that was going on on the inside to meet new people, to learn from people, to learn from landscapes, to slow things down. I mean, dude, you could do you could do all this with a good bar crawl. You could be like, you know, what? I'm just going to go out in town, just go to a few bars, have a good time. How, how does the idea to walk for 242 days across the entire United States from Delaware to California and start come about? Why, why that? Just the disruption of it. It was terrifying in moment by moment fashion. So literally going through towns and not knowing where I would sleep, not knowing who I would meet, the terrifying but wonderful reality of the high desert and the mountains and and exploring them and conquering them in a way, you know, just to get through them, to feel them, to struggle with them. The people you met on the road, those stories are so beautiful. You were... You were recovering at the time, as you say, from a lot of personal sadness. You had you had come close to wanting to end it all pretty recently when you went on the road. You also you allude to the fact that you were recovering from some forms of Christianity that had been pretty difficult to have to inhabit. And then you meet this woman who runs to take you home for an Easter dinner. Can you can you share it with everyone that story? Because that's like it's it's worth the book by itself, if that's all the book were. You know, Sundays, 11, 12 o'clock church lets out or services let out, you know, there's people driving by, they see me moving alongside the road and it's, you know, shoulder out the window. Like, do you know our Lord? (laughs) Are you saved yet? You know, and because of my history, I, you know, I grew up in mixed evangelical, mixed Catholic and, you know, I'm gay, queer. And so being comfortable in that space, that's a big part of what, what led up to just wanting to end things because I wasn't comfortable. I was hating who I was. All of that was kind of still boiling and bubbling on the inside as I did this walk. And Ohio, which is where this story was located, was still in the early couple months of the journey. So I'm still a little raw. I'm still finding my way. And, you know, this woman was, she pulled over and she just said, I'm in a hurry. I saw you walking on my way to church. I'm going back. I'm cooking a meal for my family. Would you come? But you got to decide quick. (laughs) And so I didn't think twice. Jumped in the back of the truck. We get to her place. And it turns out just to be a beautiful meal with new people in rural Ohio. And within maybe an hour, hour and a half before I had to go back, uh, she's just saying, hey, I, I also wanted to invite you into this. And she's trying to get the words out. She's trying to communicate 
she's breaking up with tears. I mean, she can't fully get the words out. So I'm just kind of letting her, you know, feel things. And I, I notice that the daughters are in the kitchen and they're observing. And so they start coming in and they huddle together next to the doorway and she's trying to get the words out and eventually put my hand on her shoulder. And I'm just like, it's okay. It's okay. Like I, I'm here, whatever you want to share. And then she eventually starts, she turns around, she grabs a bowl of rocks and she grabs a photo and she hands me the photo. And then she explains that this is a photo of my grandson, Jason. This has been a really one of the hardest seasons for us. Um, just a few months ago, uh, Jason took his life and we have no idea why. We're devastated. This is our first holiday together. We're on edges. I mean, she just kept, you know, and as she's crying the whole time. It's extremely vulnerable. And so I, I take the photo, she's handing it to me, and I kind of look at this image. And Jason is, you know, teenage young man leaning against his car, hanging out, he's smiling, you know. And I and I think just because of my own personal journey with suicide and knowing those edges and having just a lot of complicated, buried, suppressed realities going on on the inside, I just I immediately connected to this to kind of the ache of this photo. And so I'm tearing up now and you know, we're just having this really intimate exchange. And in a matter of moments, she's just like, you're going to see things that we may never get to see, incredible spaces and places and, and, and mountains and canyons. And will you take some of these rocks and leave them in places that um, are beautiful and inspiring and representation of Jason's life? And I'm just, so now, I mean, the tears, I'm a mess, she's a mess, the daughters, we're all kind of in this huddle, you know, and I couldn't help but, you know, thinking about even that morning with all the, um, you know, just the kind of the roadside altar calls, like I just, I'm like, what, what, what was Jason going through? What couldn't he say? What couldn't he invite people into? And so I was really thinking a lot about that after she dropped me off and, but a very beautiful story and a reflection of the stories that would that would unfold throughout throughout the walk. You know, of course, I started reading it and like four pages in, I'm like, that's it. You know, uh, kids, daddy will be home in 242 days. I have to do this now. I, <laughs> I have to walk to San Francisco. But then but then I noticed that you're basically advocating something else uh, that you're advocating. And it's I should have known better because you put it right there in the title of the book, the subtitle at one to three miles per hour. Now, I know myself, and if I committed to this, I would immediately say, okay, I have to make a time. Jonathan did it in 242 days. I'm doing it in 116. I have to get here. <laughs> like the issue of pace, because you spend a lot of time in this book very beautifully, not just meditating on, but but giving real concrete pieces of advice on how people could do this. Slow down and, you know, be here now. Now, that strikes me as just about the most difficult thing a human being of our generation could do because there's so much information overload and there's so much, you know, expectation that you will move fast, that you will be goal-oriented, that you will do things on top of doing other things. How, how do you stop? How do you slow down to the point where you could notice a hawk flying around and then this wing pattern and everything? How do you do that? The thing that just comes up right away and what I try and put in as many different colors and shapes in the book as I can is just how much movement, uh, whether it's on foot or on a wheelchair or powered scooter, but just unhurried one to three miles, whatever your pace is really just how movement can, can land like almost organically into moments of presence. And I think that's rather than kind of, Oh, I need to, 
I need to slow down. I need to block some time out to slow down. It's like to just protect time to be moving kind of the, the way we're made to, you know, whatever your pace is right out our front door, you know, at parks or trails, but, but really just wherever we are and just leaning a little more into not trying to be thinking so much and preparing yourself maybe a little bit to be open and attentive to what might show up. And so then it's like, the sun rises, the sun sets, the way the trees and the leaves fall and the way the wind carries them. And then these, just these, these moments and these glimpses and, you know, they show up. And I just find for me, cause I also have a really active brain and I feel like I always do need to be doing something, which is, I think some of why this really is my main medicine. I need it. And so it, I just find I can naturally rest into a place of slowing down after I've moved for 20, 30 minutes. There's just so much after 20 minutes of movement that I find I can just so much more naturally like pick up the leaf and notice the details or be with the hog. And it might just be for a minute or two, but that's a minute or two where I, I would have never planned for some of those moments. And so I think just having those moments as they show up, as they do, you know, within a day, within a week, they're special and, and they're not a fad. It's not a gimmick. It's not download the app here. <laughs> It's, it's so intrinsic. And so I, I don't pretend for a second, I've got it figured out, but there is a dedication to walking as medicine for me that, that has been such a teacher. Jonathan, you are our Gentile of the week. And as such, we reserve for you the highest honor that we do reserve for our Gentilic friends of asking us a question, us being the internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts on this podcast, which <laughs> was designed by you know iTunes and God as the world's most popular Jewish show, ask away. No surprise, being that walking is such a big place of creative process for me and my main form of medicine, I guess. The question just being, what practices, traditions, things within Jewish community that you all are aware of related to moving in an unhurried way? What comes up? What do you know? What could you share? I'd just be so curious to hear more. So the first thing that comes to mind for me is Shabbat. And particularly for people that are Shomer Shabbos or observe Shabbat fully, and especially those in Orthodox communities do this, they will not use electricity on the Sabbath. So that means that they won't drive, which means that they are walking everywhere they go, which means that they're walking to synagogue. They're walking home from synagogue. They're walking to their friend's house to hang out because they're not like able to watch TV that day. And even though I'm not Shomer Shabbos, I do particularly try to walk more on Shabbat to like invite that sense of rest and of unhurried movement into my day, even if it is just once a week. Absolutely. And I would just add to that, that um, Jews have a lot more holidays than you think they do. Jews are actually closer to Catholics than say to Protestants in this. Like we have a couple dozen holidays throughout the year during which if they're observant, they're not going to work, their kids aren't going to school, et cetera. So we build in just a lot of days when we aren't driving, when we're walking. I want to add one or two more things and then end on a really mystical note because I got I got strong vibes from your book, man. I'm so glad. First of all, look, we used to be a temple-based religion. Judaism, as we know it, came to be somewhere around the year 500. Uh, The temple itself was destroyed around the year 70. But before it was destroyed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, people had to commit themselves to pilgrimages, annual pilgrimages, three times a year. Everyone would walk. Now, there's also a different tradition 
everyone would walk up to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer their sacrifices. Now, there's also a different tradition in, in Judaism, which is called Shnat Shemitah, or, or the year of Shemitah. This is the idea that I think you'll also appreciate, that every seven years, you have to let the land rest. No agriculture, no working the land, nothing. Everything just needs to, you know, chill out. And at the end of this year, they would do something called the Hakel, which is Hebrew for congregate, in which everyone, by which I mean everyone, every single living Jew in the land of Israel, had to leave their homes, walk to Jerusalem and stand together. And the king of Israel would take the Torah and read it to everyone, basically saying, we're all here now. We're all together. We're all part of the same great experiment. But I want to share with you, um, I mean, that sadly is no longer happening since there is no temple and thankfully no longer a king. But here's one mystical walking related tradition that we still have. It is a tradition that under the chuppah or under the wedding canopy, the bride, and I, I assume this, this would translate just as well to same-sex unions uh, who choose to adopt this practice. The bride walks seven times in a circle around her groom-to-be, basically saying, by walking around you and surrounding you seven times, seven, of course, being a kind of mystical number, I am creating a sacred space that is just for the two of us. Yes, we're standing here with our families. Yes, we're standing here under God. But we are creating the space, and it's just for us, and it has to be created by, by physical movement, by walking. Oh, that is beautiful. Oh my gosh, I love it. And that is typically the last time Jews walk. Other than that, we, <laughs> we take cabs everywhere. <laughs> Rickshaw, <laughs> tram, right. very lazy people. SpaceX. Jonathan Stalls, you've been an extraordinary Gentile of the Week and we, we would love to walk with you. So next time you're in New York, let us walk together. I'd be so honored. I'm so grateful. Thank you all. Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov? I do. I'm sorry, but I have to. It's an annual mazel tov to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who this week began year 19 of his four-year term. Mazel tov, <laughs> and here's to 120. And I have a mazel tov this week. Two mazel tovs ripped from the headlines. One is, I'm really, I don't know if charmed is the right word, or edified, enraptured by the New York Times' ongoing coverage of Hasidic schooling in Brooklyn, which, you know, you can go back and listen to our conversation about it. I think it has some problems. But this latest article seemed super tight to me, how Hasidic schools reaped a windfall of special education funding. It was by Brian Rosenthal, and it ran on December 29th, which is a weird time to run anything. I don't know if you get maximum readership between Christmas and New Year's, or if you get minimum readership, but I don't have any conspiracy theories about that. I just think it's a really important article. And whatever one thinks of it, it's 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 getting at something fairly, fairly true that needs to be reckoned with. Um, on a lighter note, I had not heard of this guy, Adolfo Kaminsky, this forger who died a couple days ago, who used his his super elite FBI style skills to forge identity documents for Jews fleeing Nazis in Europe and then became a major forger in life afterwards. And apparently there was a documentary about him that I completely missed called The Forger. And now he's dead. I'll never get he'll never get to be Jew of the week. But but farewell to Adolfo Kaminsky. It's bad for me. Oh, it's bad for me. I can't see why I keep coming back for more. I love it and I hate it. Can't resist. I'm torn. It's bad for me. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Jerome Rusquet, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag 
Are the pictures of us modeling the swag up in the they swag store yet? They will be re- released to the world soon. Pretty soon they're going to be pictures of us modeling the swag the way that L.L. Bean models used to be actual L.L. Bean employees before the world went to hell. They will be at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Across the USA theme also by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail. P.O. Box 2007 Oh, I like that. 2 James Bond 9. 2079. New York, New York 10001. And rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi David Kamen at Congregation B'nai Israel in Gainesville, Florida. Nominated by Jake Remember Cassidy Udi. We come to you from the newly decorated, shag carpeted, sound dampened, lava lamp anticipating studios of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. I must warn you, what you're about to witness is extremely disturbing. I highly recommend changing your programs. <laughs> it's bad for me, it didn't have to be. Sometimes life doesn't always start a masterpiece. Thought I was a heaven's gates, only holding half the keys. Factually, I've been giving in to all catastrophes. A shell of myself, staring from the other side. Ascend a never ending staircase just to see a slide. Technique on the road, thought I knew the road. They sold my soul, just a cloud of this hole. Just look behind and freak the mind, no need to be reading between any lines. Searching inside for something divine, keeping the patience too many times. Too many lows, not enough highs. Looking within for the infinite light. Hands off the wheel, let God take the might. Overcome by a spirit of folly. Don't hit up my line when the devil be calling. With every stumble, I'm perpetually falling. Seems only when it's toxic is when my chips are all yeah, in. It's bad for me. me.